talking about Silence of the Lambs, um, which I'm honestly like slightly insecure about talking about because the last few movies we've been we've talked about have been either bad or like not so great movies that I found things to love about. And now we're talking about an actual great movie that I honestly am struggling to have as like hilarious or as fun yeah, of a right. conversation about because when it comes to Silence of the Lambs, I've seen it so many times. It's just kind of like, God, this movie fucking slaps. I love this fucking thing so much. I've seen it so many times. Um, so fortunately, I, I actually took notes this time like a, like, a, like a good boy. We've trained ourselves to talk about these pieces of garbage, you know, over the last couple yes. of weeks. Like we had a low, we, we talked for like an hour plus about ski school last week, you know, which was, we, you, our brain has to work in an entirely different way when you watch a movie like Silence of the Lambs to be like, oh yeah, this is like actually like a piece of art that is really good. And I would say most podcasts are more like cowardly than us because they're focusing either on the bad movies or the good movies whereas we're trying to do both it's yeah it's very difficult is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. Oh, he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're gonna catch him, do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lecter's missing hand arm. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? Thank you, Clarice. Welcome to 30 Years Later. And uh, today's a pretty tonight's a pretty important episode because it's a bona fide classic, one of the few bona fide classics that we've gotten to talk about. And uh, Chris Chafin and me, Ricky Kemler, are joined by um, one of the great uh, pop culture writers of the internet and just around, Sean Collins. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for being here. Hello. Hi, happy to be here. Sean, do you remember where you were the first time you saw Silence of the Lambs? I was at a friend's house in high school. It was a movie that we rented to watch in a group, and I think we double featured it with something that now it it could have been. I think it might have been Deliverance, actually. So that oh, was that's an incredible double feature. That was a fun night at the movies for sure, and yeah, I, I remember being kind of skeptical, and I don't remember a whole lot about seeing it that first time because I was at by that point this was in the mid nineties, and I had become kind of a horror snob who was into more hardcore shit than silence of the lambs, which I had always thought of as a thriller. 
from when I was 12 years old and it first came out because it came out the week after the Julia Roberts movie Sleeping with the Enemy. And I just, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I would see the, the posters for them together and I would see commercials for them together and they both began with the letter S. So that made a connection in my mind for some reason. And so I always like... Those are, those, those are like those weird connections that you make when you're young that you ca- sometimes carry on into your older years where someone will bring up a movie that you've developed some sort of weird animosity towards. And they're like, no, that's actually a good movie. And you're like, nah, I don't know. I just don't believe you. But it's probably just because it began with S around the yep. same time another <laughs> S movie came out. That's exactly it. But I can tell you the first time that I really saw The Silence of the Lambs, like got it. Was I was in college at that point, and the film society was having a screening of it, and I got real high and went to it with a friend of mine, and seeing it on a big screen while stoned, that made a huge difference in my ability to appreciate what the movie was doing, and I was much less, you know, because I, I had kind of turned my nose up at it, thinking, oh, it's just a thriller, who cares, but it was so much uh, more complicated and complex and dark than I was giving it any credit for, so that was that was when it really kind of clicked in my mind for the first time. I had a similar experience where I think I had seen it when I was young and it didn't really register for me. And then because it was such a piece of pop culture, pop culture, you know, ephemera and everyone talked about it and it was parodied endlessly throughout the the entire decade of the nineties. Like I think by the time I got to college, I was like less interested in the movie and didn't give it too much credit. And when it came to talking about Jonathan Demi, I would talk about Melvin and Howard or, Something wild. Something wild. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Something Wild's top top three movies for me. I, I love that movie. Um, but after college, at some point, I watched it, and that was when it clicked for me. And it was kind of like, oh, this is a very adult movie that stems from everything Do- Jonathan Demi had been building up until this point. And yeah, it's a genre piece, but it's only formulaic because it set, it created the blueprint for everything after it that totally bastardized what was wonderful about this movie. Yeah. Um, and in some ways kind of hurts the movie because I feel like you could show this to someone who's never seen it, but has seen Mindhunter or a number of the other serial killer or seven and been like, eh, it's not as good as seven. And you're kind of like, well, but seven is only seven because of this movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, to watch it again right now is yeah, every single detective movie and television show for the last 30 years is just so derivative of this. I mean, you mentioned Mindhunter. Like, that's something I enjoy. But watching Silence of the Lambs, it's like, oh, well, it's just, it is just completely exactly the plot of Silence of the Lambs. And it's not necessarily done as well, or at least, like, not as economically. I mean, I think the first thing that I noticed when I when I rewatched it last night in terms of what it does better than I think most movies about institutionalized sexism, which Silence of the Lambs is definitely about, is that it is far more subtle and it doesn't really create any villains within that world. Like um, right away we meet Jodie Foster and the FBI agent that goes and grabs her after the opening credits and is like Crawford wants to see you in, in his office. She runs away and he stares at her for a long time with this face of like, kind of like who is this little woman what is she doing here and he's worried he's like kind of worried about her in a way but at no point does this movie really feature what Hannibal does which is Ray Liotta being like hey you want to you want to fuck in the back room like and and staring at her legs which I think most depictions of institutionalized sexism in, in in the military or the FBI probably rightly so are far less subtle 
than the way this movie works. And I, I think that's like kind of a testament to how Jonathan Demi wants to like every character in the movie. There's only the one scene where sexism is brought up explicitly, unless I'm forgetting something, which is when uh, Jack Crawford asks to um, talk to the sheriff of the small town where they found a body mm-hmm. in a separate room, you know, to away from the ears of the woman on the job or whatever. And she later brings that up with Crawford and was like, you know, it matters, you know, cops take their cues from you. It matters when you do things like that. But that was, I'm glad you brought this up, how like it doesn't really, uh, dwell on the issue in an explicit way because it's all told with the close-ups and that was what really that was what the lightning bolt was when i finally saw it again in college is just seeing anthony hopkins face gigantic staring right at me and then seeing jodie foster's face smaller her eyes are off camera a little bit and that happens over and over again the men from jack crawford to buffalo bill to uh dr lecter uh dr chilton everybody the men look right at the camera and you're well specifically in the scene and like in there's a shot there's a scene in between the scene that you just brought up where scott glenn jack crawford takes the sheriff into the other room and that's when jodie foster they're about to do the um the autopsy on the body and jodie foster has to tell all of the cops to get out of the room and she has to say it twice and it cuts directly to her point of view of all of them you know looking at this little lady And like wondering, like, who the hell is she to tell us what to do? But then they they leave. Like it takes a it takes them a beat to recognize what's going on, and they're kind of con- like the faces are kind of condescending. But then they get it and they leave. Like they're not. I just feel like in any other movie, it, someone would have had to say something, or there would have been a snicker. Whereas this, it was just kind of like these guys just need a minute to recognize the difference in this situation as opposed to everything else they're used to. Sean, you were talking about the close-ups. Like, I think I thought the close-ups were so interesting, and it's such a huge part of the film, right? And it's kind of unusual the way that it's shot in this like shot reverse shot, like very tight close-up, like very shallow focus. And it did make me think about Jonathan Demi and like how you can kind of draw a line from music videos or like performance films to something like Swimming to Cambodia and then to this movie, right? They just really share that like aesthetic of the face huge in the screen and you can kind of understand how it's evolving through his you know through his career and it, and it makes total sense but it's such an odd approach for a movie like this in a way especially in the in the 90s where i feel like it was a lot more normal to have these kind of long shots of people sitting on desks and like gesturing at whiteboards and stuff um well there's ps demi had said that he had started doing this more so in something wild. The sub, he called it him and Tak Fujimoto, the cinematographer, called it subjective camera or subjective close-ups. I think where the basically the uh, actor is essentially staring right down the pike when you're doing a shot reverse shot rather than doing over the shoulder. You know he's doing close cl- centrific close-up to close-up with the actor looking almost right down the barrel of the lens. And he said when he got the script for Silence of the Lambs, it was like, oh, we can just do this for the whole movie now. Like, this is great. Like, we've been working on this and trying to develop this technique, and now we can really put it into practice for almost every shot in the movie. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's, it's mesmerizing. It really does take on a kind of hypnotic quality as you're staring into the eyes of these people. And I think that in addition to having you know creating this subtle visual reinforcement of the the male gaze and how and clarice's position in a male-dominated world it also evokes old hollywood glamour i think 
And I would imagine, you know, to play armchair psychologist for a se- for a second, when the film cleaned up at the Academy Awards that year in a way that only two other movies in history had ever done, like sweeping all the major categories, uh, I, I, I would, I would bet that those close-ups on Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster in particular kind of resonated with that audience of, of voters because it, 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 it has an old school feeling to it. And I mean, old school, you know, we had faces that kind of old school. Yeah. It won best picture, best director, best screenplay, best actor, best actress in 1991, which is unheard. That's, that's unheard of. That's wild. For a horror Um, movie. And they, yeah, and they didn't expect it at all. And at the same time, it was number one at the box office for five weeks and I think was in theaters for like six months. Well, I mean, you guys were talking about the impact of this on culture, like seeing it parodied so much. I mean, it was just, I mean, we say this all the time. We've done like Kindergarten Cop, but a movie like Silence of the Lambs, the impact on like popular consciousness of, of America, like not even just in this year, but like for the next decade or like to this day, you know, it's 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 even hard to listen to Anthony Hopkins say like I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Like it sounds, I've just heard it so many times in so many different situations that it it really takes a leap of like intellectual artistic appreciation to not just think of it as like somebody on Saturday Night Live or something like that, you know? Yeah. Well, Seven didn't even really have the impact. That, I think I think Seven is beloved by. Um, uh, people beyond cinephiles, but not as far beyond as Silence of the Lambs is because Seven takes the next step in transgression that Silence of the Lambs doesn't. Um, but I do think that there is that there is that monoculture that we always talk about where I don't think a movie could ever have the, again, could ever have the impact that Silence of the Lambs had in terms of parody and in terms of the, the, the genre recreations afterwards. I mean, we're still seeing it with um, The Little Things that came out a couple weeks ago, which was a direct play on Silence of the Lambs and Seven, and even in that they said it in 1993, just to make that clear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're... did either of you guys see that movie? Mm-mm. I didn't. I didn't see it. No, it's not. It's not very good. But there is this sense that he he did write it in like 92 or 93, and so he just said it there. Okay, <laughs> all right. There, there is this. Uh, Rami Malek is real bad in it um jared leto is surprisingly good um or at the very least seems to be the only one having a good time so again surprisingly um but there is something about it in terms of a a kind of response to the serial killer movies that were being made at that time where it um it takes away any kind of like real growth, any kind of gore or any kind of like solution or conclusion. And is basically saying that like, you know, you'll never really know the answer to evil and it just, kind of, but, and it, and it'll just exist and plague you forever. But at the same time, it's not a good movie. It's, it's, a, it's a very boring, very turgy. Ricky, is, Ricky is, is, is it that smart thing you said, or is it just like not plotted very well? <laughs> you know? Um, it's not, yeah, it's not plotted very well. And everybody with the exception of Jared Leto seems to be just kind of like collecting the check. (laughs) But I mean, it is, I mean, like we were saying it, it's, this movie created a genre of entertainment that exists to this day and it, it hits the same notes every single time. And I actually think one of the interesting things about this movie, watching it again, is it, it has this way it's plotted the way, uh, 90s movies for adults adapted from books were plotted 
if you know what I mean, where there's just kind of extraneous details and the, the story chronology is, is just a little bit weirder than it needs to be. And I think that's, you know, it's come, comes from doing like a, a book adaptation. And I don't think that you really see this anymore. You know, there's a lot more like smooth storytelling in this genre these days. Well, that, that's that thing that we always talk about where you can often with movies now, you can just kind of hear the like the executive in another room being like, what do we need this for? What do we need this for? Exactly. Streamline mm-hmm. it, streamline mm-hmm. it, you know, whereas in Silence of the Lambs, like great movies of this period of time and, and prior to that and a little after, it takes time to find tangents and go into different places that illuminate the major themes of the movie versus just focusing on like the streamlined plot to get us from point A to point B. Yeah. I mean, just even the title, it's from an anecdote she tells about her childhood. It has yeah. nothing to do with the main case or anything. And I, it, the one of the nice things about the screenplay is that it makes room for that. It's not streamlined I mean, so that you're only, ra- you know, you're laser focused on catching Buffalo Bill or whatever. Right. It becomes, I mean, that becomes like the centerpiece of the movie is her, get, is, her is, is that monologue. Yeah. And they're back and forth. And it's what people... You know, I don't know if it's what people remember about the movie or parody, but it's definitely when you're watching the movie, it's what it's what gives everything else depth and 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 weight, right? Like the movie wouldn't really the movie would feel in ways like Hannibal if it didn't have those those the those those um those monologues and those conversations between the two of them. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. The derivatives of this in the like silence extended universe don't have this scene or its equivalents, even though this is like the center of this movie. And because it, it is kind of weird and it's kind of easy to be like, like what is going on in this scene? And it's not like he did a cool thing with somebody's skin, you know, like I feel like that's more where the focus of things is or like, what's like a super fucked up way he could bite somebody. This is like this very deep psychological thing is happening and it's obvious and it makes the rest of it work (laughs) that this, that the scene is in the movie and the rest of the, the derivatives don't don't have it i'm thinking back to the first time hannibal lecter went up on screen was in manhunter the michael mann movie where brian cox played him and obviously i I believe they recycle this in the hannibal uh in the red dragon movie it's been ages since i saw it but in manhunter there's this scene where the serial killer goes on a date with his blind uh would-be girlfriend and takes her to the zoo to feel put her hands on an anesthetized tiger and it's like why the hell is that scene in that movie? I mean, like from from an executive's perspective, right, right. why are we why are we following the serial killer on his first date to the zoo, where his blind <laughs> his literal blind date puts her hands on an anesthetized tiger? It's like, well, because it's it's just got power. It's got this like mythic image making power. That's why. That's why you do it. And it's the same thing with this the monologue and the exchange back and forth between the two of them, which is really rapid fire as it goes um it's because that's where the power of the thing is if you you cut it you lose so much i'll say that the um they do do that scene in red dragon because i i I just watched that today and um it doesn't have the same power that it has in manhunter not just because it's brett ratner versus michael mann but but also because when you watch red dragon the way that the movie is made that it doesn't feel like there should be any tangents. It just feels a very, like, it just feels like hack work. So you're like, just get me to the next thing. Yeah. Um, whereas in Michael Mann, everything is beautiful. And Brett Ratner, you're like, come on, is someone going to get killed or what? What's going on here? <laughs>
But that's so interesting. I was thinking also about Manhunter while I was watching Lambs last night and how um, more about Michael Mann and I guess Demi, while he brings so much of himself to his movies, he's still kind of a journeyman. And it's like the movies exist kind like I think it, I think with the exception of cinephiles, people would be hard pressed to be able to identify what separates Jonathan Demi movies from other people's movies around the period of time that he was working, even at the height of his powers. Whereas I think Michael Mann, somebody could very easily be like, oh, this who's seen a couple of his movies could very easily be like, oh, this is a Michael Mann movie. Right. Like right away. And I think it's interesting because Silence of the Lambs is about the characters that are in it. Yeah. And it's about Jody, it's about Clarice and it's about Hannibal Lecter. Whereas Manhunter is just about Michael Mann. <laughs> it's 100% just about like what that motherfucker can do with the camera and his tangerine dream score he gets to play with mm-hmm. for two and a half hours. Um, one of the things about this score that I thought as soon as the movie started was that it's Howard Shore, who it feels like this is the moment 1990 where David Cronenberg starts having a massive influence on the types of films that are being that are being made but because he's such an idiosyncratic director i don't think people always credit him for like what he for the influence just in using howard shore he was howard shore worked with him i believe for the first time yeah the brood was his second movie and howard shore kind of becomes the go-to hollywood uh composer in the 1990s him and Danny Elfman, I think. I love his work in this movie, uh, partially because I love The Lord of the Rings so much, and I think there's a direct <laughs> uh, connection between the da 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 da, which is the Science of the Lambs, and da 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 da, which is the Lord of the Rings, the ring theme from that. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I think that's probably deliberate on his part, because uh, that was such a. I mean, you want to talk about a complicated score? Good Lord, Lord of the Rings. Uh, that's like a symphonic achievement but um (laughs) but yeah yeah, i mean this movie has a complicated score too though right i mean it is almost scored like a i mean i know they were still doing scores like this in the 90s obviously but it is very you know it puts you in the mind of a movie from the the 40s or the 30s almost the way it's like this orchestral Mm -hmm. uh mystery score that's happening and there are some really interesting choices i think in the scoring too like um the scene where clarice finds the severed head for the first time there like isn't a like scare sting like they just keep going with the kind of mystery music they've been having the whole time uh for the whole exploration of this dark storage locker uh which i thought was so interesting you know i thought so many uh, basically every other movie would have used that as at least some kind of jump scare moment because it's the first big gross thing in the whole movie right there's a story behind that um, I, that I read today that Ted Talley, the screenwriter of the movie, when he saw the first screening, he was like, why aren't you like pushing the camera in really fast on that or zooming in or putting, you know, like, like you said, like a, a, a spike in the score. And Demi said to him, we have so many more cool things that we're going to do in this movie. That's just the beginning. Like, relax, let it play, <laughs> which is really smart. It's really smart to be like, you know, we are eventually going to be like, hanging a guy in a Francis Bacon like painting with his eviscerated from a jail cell. We don't need to just like a severed head in a jar, like scare the hell out of people with that. We're building there. Yeah. I think it's plenty tense and scary anyway. I mean, 
honestly, in that sequence, I'm most scared that the garage door is going to fall down on her more than I am yes. ever dead. You know, it's it, it's a movie. And that's one of the novelty, one of the novelty things I was talking about too was like the guy who owns the storage locker place is just like needlessly eccentric. Like he's got this insane facial hair situation, this really long white beard, and he's wearing some kind of weird suit, you know, and he's. He's got like a lot. He's got a lot of stuff going on. He's got a driver that he has a weird relationship with. Yeah, and it's like well, this that's is a, that's a demi thing where his 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 quote about movie making all the time was that there are no supporting characters. Like if you're on screen, you're the star. And so like he would always cast weird right. Well, weird regulars. There's re, there's there's demi regulars all over this movie. The guy the guard who gets uh, eviscerated and hung up is. Um, an actor who is in something wild in a bunch of his other movies, Paul Lazar, mm -hmm. who's in, um, who's the man with um, kind of like a, a, a who's kind of cross-eyed mm -hmm. uh, is in um, like all of Demi's movies. And there's a couple other people as well. There, Oh, there's the coroner who is in uh, all of Demi's movies as well. Oh, yeah. But um, I actually love the scene with Paul Lazar going back to the way that the movie talks about um, gender and about sexism is that, uh, everybody's kind of a dick in a way, but without stating it. And the, um, the Baltimore, the, the guy, the, the, basically the, the doctor at the Baltimore hospital for the criminally insane is like kind of the biggest sleaze bag of the movie. Yeah. And he comes on to, uh, he comes on to Jodie Foster in a way that is like pretty uncomfortable. But then when Paul Lazar, who is, um, I believe he's, works for the FBI, but like he's the guy, one of the guys who knows about bugs Right when she brings the the the, the moth. This the, the can I just moth. pause on this for one second? When we'll of, of course, please continue momentarily. But did anyone were either of you guys put in the mind of like uh, the lone gunman from the X Files? Is that just like a direct rip off of this sequence in uh, Silence of the Lambs? Where you have the exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Anyway, yes, please continue, Ricky. <laughs> oh well, this the guy he 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 hits on her, but he's like kind of nice about it. And she says, are you hitting on me? And smiles. And he says, yes. And it's not, it's just this weird juxtaposition between the way that the Baltimore City Hospital, the Baltimore Hospital for the Criminally Insane guy was doing it and the way that Paul Lazar was doing it. The movie was kind of saying that like, it's not a terrible thing to, to tell someone you like them or to like invite them out. It's how you do it and don't be a dick about it. Because then Paul Lazar shows up at the end of the movie just before Clarice gets the phone call after she graduates, just before she gets the phone call from Hannibal Lecter, she's hanging out with him at the party. Yeah. Like they're all having a good time together. I just thought that was such an interesting moment to like, to sort of force that presentation of like what this woman, how, where her strengths lie and what type of person she might respond to versus not respond and to. Given how much of the movie is constructed around men looking directly at the camera. I don't think it's a coincidence that she handles his overture as well. Uh, when the two guys in question in the scene are Paul Lazar, who's slightly cross-eyed, and uh, Dan Butler, the actor who played Bulldog on Frasier, is the other guy, and he has these huge Coke bottle glasses, right? Yeah. And like it's these two things interfere with the gaze, so she's able to interact with them on a more uh, e equal playing field. Oh, that's an incredible point. I didn't even think about think about that in regards to the close-ups. I had a period yeah. where this was the only movie I watched, so. <laughs> Is that true? Yes, it is. Yeah, right after I graduated college, I would I would watch it every night, and 
I mean, there's the possibility that we should just sort of let you take over. Yeah, I feel like I've been talking way too much. Like, like I really underestimated what you had. You you tell me, Sean. I mean, you know, monologue, please. Just, just for God's sakes. That was a long time of the time ago, though. I don't know how much of my brilliant insights that I had when I was watching it every night at midnight eating like uh, taco bell or whatever <laughs> really gonna, i don't know how much of that i can dial up at will but for in a certain extent like was watching silence of the lambs every night like watching like law and order or something no. was it kind of like that no it wasn't it wasn't it was yeah. uh it has an emotional tone that's much more you know melancholy in a way that i think kind of appealed to me at the time uh it's not like law and order where it's just like you know this engaging you know who how are they going to catch the person and then how are they going to prosecute the person um no it was it, i watched it like i would watch a real movie not like a proceed not like a police procedural or whatever but somehow it is still the blueprint for mm-hmm. the movie procedural and the, the 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 television procedural as well but it goes back to kind of what we were saying i i think at the beginning which is that there is um, a directorial effort and heart on the part of Jonathan Demi that is just not present in 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 any of in anything that follows. I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, and you, I I keep wanting to just mention like like I've talking about this has made me remember about the existence of Kiss the Girls, like that whole universe of movies, mm-hmm. which obviously wasn't possible without a movie like this, but is so far removed from it at the same time. Oh, Chris, you should really watch the little things. <laughs> I mean, it, it sucks, but like, if if you're if like in in any way you have some sort of nostalgia for that period of for that ten year period where they were just like pumping these fucking movies out. No, I mean, like, I hated all of them. I hated all of those movies. Yeah. Then maybe you should watch them. I don't know. Yeah. Um, let's but let's talk about the first time we meet Anthony Hopkins when that incredible uh, when she's walking down the the hall the prison hallway. The crazy guys are yelling at her. <laughs> like one guy says, "I can smell your cunt," and um, and then the camera like doll like uh, dollies down, and Anthony Hopkins is just staring directly at the camera yeah. in this like, back straight posture with his jumpsuit on. Every time I've seen that movie, I think since I finally got the movie, I laugh hysterically at like the way that he's standing, and it reminds me how much fun anthony hopkins is having in this movie and after having watched all the other ones that he's in he doesn't seem to be having nearly as much fun even though they're even campier than than this like this one he's having a really good time as 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 like and you, you get the sense that because he's having so much fun he's trying really hard like he's yeah. he's working at it because he finds this really enjoyable he loves the role he loves the film he wants it to work so so he's putting the work in whereas in in hannibal and red dragon it just feels like well, he could he could have phoned this part in he knows it so well and it, it it shows i think yeah yeah it's like a check collecting job versus in this one where he's trying to discover the character but and find it but just that act oh, of standing there and waiting yeah. <laughs> for her expecting her like it, it it catches you so off guard it puts you and her it wrong foots you right away right like it's just like huh okay i guess i i guess he was waiting for me uh all right it's 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 creepy and and cool that he did that (laughs) but but it also makes it's also logical he hasn't 
had a visitor in however long this new person who he knows is going to be a young woman is coming to visit him. He's excited. Yeah. Like, and he looks excited in the shot. Like you're seeing, you're seeing Hannibal Lecter, like I'm getting a visitor. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, But there is this sense that I think you get with Demi with this movie um, and stop me if I talk about him too much. I just, I do love Jonathan Demi a lot, but um that you get with this movie and the way that you get with, I think someone like Martin Scorsese or Paul Thomas Anderson, or, you know, even Quentin Tarantino, I guess you get the sense of a director really enjoying watching what their actors are doing. Like someone giddy behind the monitors, just loving everything that they're, that they're, that they're doing. And one of the things that he said about those close-ups is that he started doing them because he just loved being as close to the actors as possible. I mean, it's such a fantastic scene by Anthony Hopkins and by Jodie Foster too, right? I I love watching her in that scene. I love watching like all the things she's going through. Uh, Such a range of like very identifiable emotions where she's trying to seem like tough and smart. And then she's trying really hard not to seem scared. And she's doing it all in this way that is amazing it's so human so you know uh, you feel like it's it's happening in front of you and and if you do start thinking about the acting for a minute all you can think is like wow she's doing this really well <laughs> like she really really looks like she's trying not to seem scared yeah because his performance too um there's such a blend of emotions that he's bringing into this first scene like he obviously has this almost supernatural level of composure which cloaks a lot of it but at different times during that first scene, he's flirtatious, he's condescending, he's trying to be scary, he's trying to be polite, like, he's kind of all over the place, but just, he keeps it all in this sort of very narrow bandwidth of affect, and I don't know, I would be intimidated too if I was Corey Starling. <laughs> well, he's got that, uh, the the moment where she, she brings, she sa- he says a, you know, it's a bad segue when she brings up the actual quit yeah. um, uh, the survey that, that that they want him to do, mm. and uh, she and then and that's when he says the eat your liver beans with a, a bottle of Chianti, and then does the lip suck thing that is just disgusting. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it's funny. It's like I don't laugh at that scene in the movie because I think I've seen it too many times, but I still find it disgusting. <laughs> I mean, I think it's funny. I think it's funny. It's just so, it's just so campy, but it's also works as being scary. It's, I mean, you're talking about Anthony Hopkins having fun. I mean, this is, it seems like this would be a lot of fun to do. Well, he apparently improvised it. I think that was the line and that, and that delivery of that line. And then the thing like that, that, that became famous. I knew that long before I saw the movie. Like that was the thing for, that's the Borat voice. My wife of the Silence of the lambs. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. Oh, I feel like God, it, was, it is. Like, yes, that's perfect. That's perfectly put. Yes, they did it in like every episode of In Living Color for the next four <laughs> years. Probably. I was on the critic like a million times. It's yeah. <laughs> exactly what it was. What movie was it? Is it the Cable Guy where the guy where the person puts like bacon on their face and goes Silence of the Lambs? Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> No, I don't know either. I don't. <laughs> uh, it was like in my head all day. There's some movie where like, I think it's like a buddy comedy and the idiot buddy puts bacon on his face and goes silence of the, la-. and the guy's like, Oh, you asshole. This is annoying. I just wish it I is the remember. cable guy. Yes, you're right. <laughs> oh, is it? I okay. looked up silence of the lambs, bacon face. And that was the first result. 
um, what do you guys think of um, the the Clarice's flashbacks in in this and the way that Demi does those? I love I mean, it. I think it's so beautiful. Uh, the way it kind of it's not it's not apparent immediately that the first one is a flashback. It just kind of cuts in this sort of dreamlike way from the present day to the past. And then, if I'm not mistaken, it cuts to her crying outside of the psychiatric hospital yeah. after her disastrous encounter with both Lecter and multiple Migs in the next cell. Um, That's right. Yeah. Migs, you fucking idiot! <laughs> Shut the fuck up! <laughs> It is so weird though how that scene ends though because it 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 ends in a way that is so plotty right where Hannibal is like wait hurry up come back to the cell I have a secret clue for you and then he yells a secret clue at her and she runs away um, like that I also well, I'd like to sorry Chris I don't mean to step on you but I, I'd also like to um, maybe walk back my claims that this movie isn't heavy handed about the sexism <laughs> considering. Considering that the female lead gets cum thrown in her face in the first 15 minutes of the movie. Good point. That's fair. That's fair. Like, actually, maybe it's heavy-handed, but it was handled well. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's that's still, that has an impact, uh, no matter how oh, many yeah. times you've seen it. Yeah, it's I watched disgusting. The movie last night. It's it's disgusting, yeah. right? It's not the kind of thing you would see in a film even today. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think anyone would. I don't think anyone would really allow it in, right. in, a, in a movie today because it'd just be too off-putting. I don't even. I can't even see Fincher doing something that um, sort of visceral and kinetic. Usually, the sort of you know he's, I think, often cited as like one of the more transgressive Hollywood filmmakers. And I think even when he does it it's never like fluid or in motion. It's like a portrait of some kind, you know, like maybe in Gone Girl, the murder of Neil Patrick Harris, but that's not, that's just like a standard death scene. Yeah. And also it toys with your, uh, your emotions too, because Lecter then causes Miggs, uh, Miggs's death. And like Clarice, you're not really sure how you're supposed to feel about this because, yeah. you know, on the one hand, he's, he's, he was a vulgar, horrid man who did God knows what to get into that uh, prison cell. And on the other hand, there's something about the way Lecter gloats, you know, when, when she tells, when he says something off color and she says, that sounds like something Miggs would say. And he goes, not anymore. Like you can't root. For, like it's a great line, but it's a, that's a bad, that's a bad guy line. Like, that's bad guy shit to, to to have done what he did to Migs. So like, but it's also in like service. It's like it was like a favor for her, yeah. you know. Yep. Like, yep. yeah. Well, it's subversive in that way, right? Because it subverts who the audience is rooting for, right? In terms of what you would normally go into movies with, but it also sets him up as a man of principle, right? Like he may right. be a psychopath and a murderer, and he may be a cannibal, but he is a man of principles that we as an audience can like all relate to in a way he wouldn't throw his semen in the face of our main character I, like i agree with you ricky but can i just rewind a second when you saying hannibal lecter lived by morals that we all would agree to <laughs> principles i didn't say morals i said principles, principles. all right yeah. all right sure yeah i mean sure omar little in the wire said you know a man's got to have a code right and... yeah, i mean he does have a code i'm not disagreeing yeah. with that I will say, and going back to um, the, the, the follow-up movies in regards to Hannibal, 
he has too much of a code and becomes a Dexter like figure in in Hannibal. Whereas in in this, you know, he couldn't he can kill innocent people and people we don't like, yet the code is kind of established. Whereas in Hannibal, it almost feels like he's mostly operating out of like a, a Dexter like um He's killing people who deserve it, like Ray Liotta or Gary Oldman in, in those movies. They go out of their way to make Hannibal likable. And then if you watch Hannibal Rising, they go even further out of the way where it's actually like a vengeance movie where he's a psychopath, but he's getting vengeance on his childhood abusers. It's so fucking stupid. One thing I liked um, about the Hannibal TV show is that he's uh, cruel to his friends, which, mm-hmm. you know, I, th- I think is probably an... Imp- I mean that shows all over the place in terms of how it actually characterizes these people. And I think, but I personally feel that by the end it got, uh, Brian Fuller got a little high in his own supply and was a little too generous to Hannibal as a person. Uh, when the whole point of the show is that he's not like, he doesn't have the things that he doesn't have the emotional makeup of a, of a person. Um, actual people are just pings to him. They make that point so explicitly and then to have it turn around and be this kind of like love story, I've always thought was like, ah, I just don't buy it. Um, have you seen the new Clarice at all? Not yet. I'm going to very soon. I'll be covering it for Vulture. So oh, you uh, will. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen it. I'm, I'm uh, not hearing good things. Not hearing good things. Yeah, I'm a little concerned myself. You know, it's one of these things where it's like, oh, uh, a Science of the Lamb TV show that could be good. They've done it before. It was good, and then you're like, oh, it's on CBS, and it's like, oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to go back to the flashbacks for a minute because I, I one of the things that I love about them is that they're not. I want. I don't want to say they're not literal because it becomes clear exactly what she's looking at, and it's. But the way that you f- he floats in and out of them, it's not. Um, it doesn't feel obvious. It doesn't feel like he's trying to hit the ha- hit the hammer on the head too hard. Like you said, Sean, it feels kind of dreamy. And I, again, I, I just, I hate to keep saying the way that movies do things now, but it just feels like if this were in a, a movie like this now, a serial killer movie, it would be like a very clear, direct flashback that wasn't dreamy like this. Or if it was dreamy, it would be shot in some sort of strobe-like black and white. Yeah, and they would like all be wearing color. like crazy sundresses and somebody would be like on a rotary phone and, you know... <laughs> So they would have like dirt on their nose and be like, hey, ma. It'd be like a cross between a, like a Nightmare on Elm Street intro and like an actual flashback, you know, where like kids would be singing um, ashes, ashes, <laughs> dancing in the yard. And meanwhile, there's like a dead body and like or like a husband committing domestic violence against his wife while she's like crying in the corner or something. Well, I mean, interestingly, we don't see the murder. We don't see her dad get killed, which I think in a a current day version of this movie, that would be the flashback, not this flashback that we get. And you need, right. Which is, I was just going to say, you need the flashback the way they do it. You need, I think to see her first experience with the dead body, which was her father's, uh, which gives her, which adds so much pathos an emotion to an already emotional scene when she's examining she's examining a victim for the first time and you know so are so are we in the audience uh, really getting a good look at what buffalo bill is doing to people and it's sad i mean that's the thing this is a sad movie and i, I love that about it i if you want to talk about things that a serial killer movie today would not do 
I just don't think enough of them are sad enough. Because there's something really... I mean, uh, this sounds like a truism. Of course there's something sad about serial murder. But, like, it is. It's sad. These people are gone. Like, they had a whole life. They had a whole story. They bumped into the wrong guy. And then their whole story is subsumed into this other narrative about the serial killer. Like, they're erased twice. It's awful. And I think to Silence of the Lambs credit and to speak to something a little bit slightly contemporaneous, um, Twin Peaks, they don't let you lose sight of that sadness. And I think that's why they stand up as well as they do. Mm. And you're right about the the flashbacks that the, the, the heart and the emotional impact of what the movie is trying to do comes first versus the literal plotting of it. Right. Right. Versus being like, this is her father. He died. He killed himself. That's why we're flashing back. It's more like, well, what does this flashback mean to her? And that's why it appears at a specific moment where she's already at a funeral and it reminds her of a funeral. Right. right. Like you said, it's her first experience with a dead body rather than just suddenly being like, Oh, well we have to give the audience new information about who she is. So let's go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like this is the motivation part. Oh, one thing, you know, one thing that I wanted to talk about, um, and this has probably been talked about to death. Uh, in regards to this movie, and it's the reason that Demi made Philadelphia afterwards, is that this movie was picketed by LGBTQ groups for being um, transphobic. Oh, yeah. um, but for some reason, I guess I hadn't noticed this before, the movie goes out of its way to state that he's not trans. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it doesn't necessarily take away from... And, it make, and the fact that I just noticed it after having seen the movie multiple times... <laughs> <laughs> might not have been enough because it doesn't take away from the um the sort of terrifying power of the moment where uh, Ted Levine as Buffalo Bill is talking and dancing right which is probably without them realizing it a more transphobic image than they than than they intended or or wanted it to be because they didn't think it was about that. And it's definitely not in the sense that when you're in Buffalo Bill's lair, he's hunting for anything transgressive to be a part of, right? Like there's swastikas, there's military paraphernalia, mm. there's guns, there's bugs. He's clearly hunting for an, uh, a home for his identity. And he has now latched onto this one. And that's why the movie goes out of the way to say he's not trans. They say transsexual. He's not transsexual. He thinks that he is. And so the movie tries to make up for it, but it's just, I think it's, it's just too hard to um, sort of come away from that one particular image that it kind of holds in for a little long. Yeah, the, the critic Emily Vanderwerf, who's trans herself, uh, had a pretty good thread about this on Twitter. She loves the movie, and she's certainly not the only trans woman I know who loves the movie and doesn't think it's transphobic in and of itself. Her argument was that the impact it had in pop culture uh, contributed to transphobia, which is mm. which is sort of the fault of the movie uh she was saying but also the movie tries as hard as it can maybe not successfully but as you say it goes out of its way to say like this this person is not trans um you know and i I really think the degree to which he wants to dress up in in women's skin and and quote-unquote become a woman is because he sees women as objects right um you know like like a good old-fashioned serial killer should like his his he preys upon women exclusively and it's not a hard and fast rule but generally speaking serial killers prey on people to whom they are sexually attracted 
um, or the, mm-hmm. the gender to whom they are sexually attracted or whatever. And uh, so I, I, I guess I would, I, I, that's where I would come down on it too. I think it had kind of a baleful effect uh, because of, of how people see Buffalo Bill uh, as trans, but the movie doesn't and, and tries as hard as it can to make the point that he's a misogynist. He's not like, that's why he's killing women. It's because he hates women. Like the, there's that part where, um, uh, what's her name? Is it Catherine? The woman he kidnaps is the Senator's daughter. Yeah, he's Brooke, Brooke Smith. Right, I think right. Her, her he's got her yeah, in the, the pit actress. and she starts screaming when she sees that there are fingernails embedded in the, uh, the walls and he's screaming, moment. mimicking yeah. her and like, and he grabs his shirt and pulls his shirt out to mimic having breasts and like makes fun of her. And it's like, that's a straight dude uh, who hates women. Like, that's what that is, yeah. you know, whatever other pretensions to whatever else he's got going on. Like that's a, that's a straight serial killer who hates women. And that's so interesting too, because the second before he is also kind of tearing up at her tearing up, Yeah, which I didn't, I, I mean, that to me, it doesn't read as him mocking it. It seems like genuine. Right. But then her screaming kind of snaps him back to where he thinks it's funny again. Right. Right. He has to re dehumanize her. Exactly. Mm. It's kind of like what people say, or the the conversation that happens, unfortunately, surrounding Scorsese's movies all the time, or his crime movies, which is that, you know, is he glamorizing these criminals? Is it his fault that there's like a generation of people who think that these criminals are cool and quote them while they're behaving like criminals? Or, you know, is it, or like, or that people misread the movies and say that he's glamorizing them when, in actuality, the movies do go out of their way to punish these people and to show that they're not uh, in the right and that they're not glamorous. Yeah, my, my partner, Julie Gerfair, had a great line about that in the latest round of Scorsese uh, discourse on Twitter. She's like, when you're saying you find that these movies like Casino and Goodfellas and The Irishman romanticize crime, you think that. You think crime yeah. is romantic. You think that. That's why you're. That's why you're blaming these movies for making crime romantic. You're looking at them and thinking, gee, that's romantic. That's you. You think that. And like, <laughs> I wanted to high five her when I saw that. And and yeah, that that's true. I remember walking out of uh, Wolf of Wall Street, like a press screening of Wolf of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. I and my friend were like, "Let's go again. That was great. <laughs> like, restart the movie. Right. I'm in." And this and this guy was like, I don't know. I thought it was like really horrific. And I was like, Yes, it was. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, I just don't think it's really good for the culture. And I was like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> like what? Like that means nothing to me. <laughs> like, and, and I was just kind of like, it was one of those moments where I was confronted with someone who was like, who just seemed to not get what the movie was doing, and also at the same time was just felt like he had to be offended for the greater populace of, of, of like who could be influenced by this movie. You know, he couldn't see that the movie didn't like these people for the most part. And it's a digression. My apologies. No, it's, it's um, on point. Um, I'm curious if you guys think if, if silence of the lambs, obviously in the eighties and just before silence of the lambs, you know, you have Henry portrait of a serial killer. And in the eighties you have, horror movies but the horror movies of the 80s which i have a deep deep love for by and large um are still kind of cultish and if if given monoculture at the time if silence of the lambs is the beginning 
of, I mean, it's 1991. It's like five months before Nirvana, I think. I, not to use Nirvana as some arbiter of like things changing. That's like a very cliche thing to do. But it's like five or six months before Smells Like Teen Spirit hits hits MTV. I think it was in June. Um, and if this is kind of the beginning of transgressive monoculture, right? If after this, you're going to start getting main, big mainstream movies that are that are really violent, that are really graphic, sexual, gory, and you're going to start getting alternative music as well that is intentionally transgressive, like Nine Inch Nails is going to break. Um, and I mean, they had broken before with uh, Pretty Hate Machine, but now they're going to come with Broken and they're going to come with the that that video that they made of like, you know, that was like a home video that was supposed to be like a serial killer video and then Downward Spiral. And then Marilyn Manson comes as well. Uh, R.I.P. Marilyn Manson. Mm-hmm. But I wonder... I wonder if this is kind of the beginning of that in terms of opening the door for, for all these other people to be very mainstream successful and as transgressive as possible. I think there's probably an argument that maybe you don't get Pulp Fiction without this movie. Mm. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause I would, I would say Pulp Fiction is, is to uh, film what Nevermind was to music. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, but Nevermind had its antecedents too, like Jane's Addiction or Nine Inch Nails, as you mentioned, yeah. um, or even Guns N' Roses, I think, which was a, uh, which I say all the time, it's hard to appreciate now, but Guns N' Roses was a huge break away from uh, hair metal, uh, yeah. you know, and because and, they seemed legitimately like dangerous, bad people. <laughs> and like, again, that's hard to, it's hard to imagine now with Axel being the way he is, but like, they, you know, they frightened people. Um, and I, I yeah, Axel, Axel being Axel being a resistance wine mom lately. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the thing that's holding—I mean, I think this is a fantastic film, and I, it's obviously super, super influential. But at the end of the day, you know, it's about the co- the cops catch the bad guys. At the end of the day, you know, so yeah. I think it's transgressive in a limited way. I mean, obviously, it is transgressive, and lots of things happen in the film. But you know, it's about cops—the cops catch the bad guys. So like, it's not, I wouldn't, I don't know that it's that, that transgressive. Well, it's not subversive necessarily, but it is presenting, um, on a, for a mainstream audience, transgressive imagery. And I think this just is such a part of culture. Like, you know, I mean, um, Law and Order had already started, but like this, it becomes this whole like X-Files, Seven, Kiss the Girls, like this is not, and I don't necessarily consider, I mean, those things subversive i mean i guess you can make the argument like the x-files is x-files, x-files was x-files was three years later seven yeah. was five years about five years later um law and order at this point having started was just law and order and law, not law and order svu whereas yeah. law and order svu is certainly criminal minds i, I don't know if, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's transgressive, but the first episode of Law and Order SVU, if I remember correctly, features a woman shattering glass and cutting her genitals with it. Right. So, like, I think I do. Is that like, true? How do you know that about if that's the first episode of SVU? Is that true? Because I, 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 I was curious what the first episode was, and I watched it, and I was like, oh yeah, this is sick and trash. I hate it. Um, <laughs> uh, but I do. Th- I, I'm. I'm I'm, I, I don't know if I'm right, but I feel like I'm making, I, I feel like there is an argument to be made and I'm fucking making it. You mean, that, yeah, you're making the shit out of it, definitely. That Silence of the Lambs is the beginning of very, very mainstream uh, transgressive 
uh, imagery. Yeah, at the very at the very. I least. think that's fair. I mean, by the end of the decade, you had a movie like Saving Private Ryan, which is everyone's grandfather's favorite movie, which was absolutely disgusting. Yeah, like yeah. you know, it has a level of gore that previously you'd have to see something like Hellraiser to see, and it's you know, it's for it's for Tom Brokaw, or it's for Tim Russert to take his dad to, you know, like it. <laughs> it's but yet it's really over the top violent and like i think um i do think you needed i think silence of the lambs was a step in that was a very important part of the evolution of uh what could be shown in a mainstream film because so much of the reputation of the movie is about the the violence right it's about the the things we've been talking about like him wearing somebody's face and you know the guy being flayed and uh the scene even the scene of buffalo bill you were talking about um, these are all like these are the the dark zeitgeist parts of this movie that people would talk to you about on on the on the playground or whatever. And it's really dark. I mean, it's handled kind of gracefully and with the with a sense of like only show what needs to be shown. But it's still fucking dark. It's still like you know patches of her back are cut mm-hmm. off on the slab. And there's like fat like- marbled underneath it. It's like very well done. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then when like Anthony Hopkins says to the senator, like, "Did you breastfeed her?" And then he's like, "You know, when your daughter's on the slab, what part of you will tickle?" Like, it's disgusting. Yeah. He's vulgar. Um, but the moment where Jodie Foster is in one of the victims' um, bed bed is it one of the victims' bedrooms or is it Buffalo Bill's old room that he was renting? It's the first victim the victim yeah right yeah. that's what i thought but i was i i, I was kind of confused it because there's the dress with the back pattern cut out and so i was like oh is he starting to make the dress here but anyway there's a moment where there's a a music box that she just sees very easily and walks over to and touches and polaroids fall out that seemingly no other detective that was oh pouring God. over this room ever found uh, i mean it's it's even worse than that because it's like it's behind the felt which she just reaches up and like rips off that, like instinctively that's because the first she, second that's because she was a small town girl and that's where she hid her shit <laughs> that's why she knows don't make that's, that that's, point. that's why she knows because she relates to this girl because they have the same kind of background they come from the same kind of town they have the same dreams of getting out getting all the way to the fbi and like that's why she knows <laughs> look behind the the lining of the music box I mean, that's a good that argument. I argument. think that's a good argument. Yeah, I think that's very good. <laughs> it's a good argument, but it's never mentioned prior. No, it's not mentioned at all. I, uh, you know, okay. just uh, that's that's where I'm. That's that's why I think it works. Hmm. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, before, before we get into the questions, I just I I want to bring up a little fact that I that I just read, and that is that uh, at the time of the making of this movie, Martha Stewart and Anthony Hopkins were dating. And when she saw the movie, she dumped him. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because she couldn't see him as anything else afterwards other than Hannibal Lecter. Um, I get it. So, yeah. You don't want to, I mean, I guess what the, what's interesting about that, okay, is that there are lots of people who, if they felt like genuinely their partner was Hannibal Lecter, they would love to fuck him. <laughs> Whereas Martha Stewart didn't want to. So that's, you know, I think that's a very telling thing. And it's also, you know, pretty positive, <laughs> pretty positive. Oh, also the, um, in uh, Hannibal Lecter's uh, sort of makeshift cell before he kills the two cops, 
is a copy of Bon Appetit magazine. (laughs) 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 Flashes over very quickly. Uh, And the other thing, if you, if you don't know much, if you are listening to this and you don't know that much about silence of the lambs and Jonathan Demi, before we get to our final part of the show, one of my favorite facts about this movie is that the great song that is playing when Buffalo Bill is dancing oh in front of the mirror is uh, by Q Lazarus. It's called Goodbye Horses. It's a fucking, it's a classic. So um, it's a good, yeah. It's so good. And I feel like in a weird, weird way, it's become a kind of regional Northeast classic. Like, I feel like it's just in New York bars yeah. and, and in restaurants all the time. And I don't know, I've never heard it like in LA or, or anywhere or anywhere else. Um, but the th- the story behind that song, which is just a story that I love, is that she, w- the woman who is Q Lazarus, was a New York cab driver, and Jonathan Demi got into her car, and she recognized him, and she played him her demo, and he loved it, and flew her to L.A. to record the song, and he put it in both Married to the Mob and in and in Silence of the Lambs, which is just such an amazing story about Jonathan Demi that I love. It's a it's a goth banger. Part and that is true. It is so good. Yeah. Um, Wait. So, can I just to, just to be clear? So, was this song not popular before this movie came out? It didn't exist. What? It didn't like before, yeah. really because I always thought of it as being like an '80s song. I did no. literally. This is where this song is from. Yep. Well, no, it's from Married to the Mob initially, but then it was used in more so in Silence of the Lambs. But it was initially has a small part in Married to the Mob. <laughs> I mean, I was actually thinking during it. I mean, obviously, it's it's a big part of the film, but I was thinking, like, it's not necessarily, like, the scene you want your big, cool pop song to be in. But, like, I guess it was great. I guess it was great exposure for this song. But you're right. It's, like, a total classic now. Yeah. I've done it at karaoke. Do, do you think quick karaoke is ever going to come back? Yes. Next question. <laughs> I, actually, I would agree with you. I think it might be one of the first things that comes. Back. I mean, I hope so, but I I don't know if it will. <laughs> you know, I would love to. I love I love going to karaoke. Um, in an interview, John Carpenter said he was disappointed with this movie because it focused so much on Clary Starling's character, and that he would have loved to direct it because he would have made it much more frightening and gripping. <laughs> <laughs> love 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 the Carpenter, but. You're wrong, bro. <laughs> so, uh, what, Sean? What's your favorite part of the movie? It involves. Well, let's see. Um, I love the Q Lazarus part because that song is so good. I love when I love the uh, the fake out at the end when you think Crawford is leading a raid into Bill's house, yes. but it turns out it's the wrong house. And he goes, Clarice, like chills still to this day. Um, it's done so well, right? It's not, it's to call it, a, it's a misdirect, but it's so much more than that because Jonathan Demme is basically like breaking the rules of filmmaking, like to just show you that a certain thing is happening and then it turns out not to be like big twist, yeah. but it's done. It's so perfectly done. It does. You're right. It's chilling to this day. Yeah. It was apparently like a paragraph in the book and Demi was like, we need to tease this out and make it a big part of the movie. Good. It works really so well. Smart. But um, yeah. so here we go. Here's the pictures part. Uh, I remember seeing this one time. So I don't remember where I heard, first heard it, uh, but I wound up putting it together on an old Tumblr of mine using illustrations and stuff. Like, so when Clarice gets the assignment to go to interview Lecter, one of Crawford's few instructions to her is like, is he drawing, sketching anything? If he is, what's he sketching? And she asks him about his pictures. That he's got them up on the wall, and uh, 
she points to one of them and he points to one of them and he says that's the duomo as seen from the belvedere you you know do you like florence or whatever it is you know because it's from florence italy um belvedere ohio is where buffalo bill winds up being so in the very first scene in his very first meeting with clarice he tells her where to find the serial killer he's like he's like the riddler i love it <laughs> wow i didn't reckon i didn't realize that that's my story man uh, the Belvedere. that's amazing that's yep. amazing dude Good. i mean it is Chris, interesting your- it is interesting because he is so helpful to her uh throughout the film right i mean he does seem i mean i i'm sure you have the deeper insight into this than me sean but he he does seem genuinely to be interested in helping her in some way for you know for something about it is gratifying to him yeah i mean i think he takes a shine to her i think he likes being smarter than all the other serial killers um you know i think yeah i think i think that's what it comes down to it's a way to it's another means by which to express his superiority over other people is to help her catch this killer well it's all the things in the follow-up movies that they hammer really hard whereas in this movie it's they kind of they recognize that the point of the movie is not that he thinks he's smarter than everybody, but it's the dynamic between the two of them. And there's a heart to the movie. Everything else was like, Oh, we'll solely focus on the gore and that this character is smarter than everybody else. And it's like, it's what makes them all tiresome and, and, and really empty. Yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, my favorite part, Ricky, I mean, this is stuff I've talked about already basically, but I, I just like the little unnecessary tangents the little things we've been talking about this whole time the the flashbacks and even how uh we go back to following clarice at school sometimes you know like we see her taking little exams and obviously this is setting up things for later in the film right but it's also like not so obviously doing that certainly not as obviously as lots of modern movies would do it um but i just love the the texture to this movie and the way that it sort of breathes and is uh feels like real life in a certain way and uh, it takes its time with with some things even though it's moving the plot along in a pretty good clip all the time also yeah i like that you know just when you mentioned her being in school still or studying there's the the wonderful scene with her and her friend ardelia casey lemon's character where Mm -hmm. it's the only time that clarice actually looks directly into the camera because her interlocutor is another woman so you see them go back and forth and that's when they figure out that bill must have known his first victim personally uh it's just beautifully done i love that i love that scene i don't know if i would include that as my favorite scene in the movie but whenever that scene comes up you're so right because every every other of those close-ups it's been her and a man all of a sudden when it becomes her and a woman there is a jarring power to those two close-ups and their and their dynamic like it it completely changes the dynamic between two people on screen. You're totally right. It's incredibly well done because it's all building in a way. Not everything is building to that, but he recognized like, oh, if I do this, it's going to be a huge punch for the way that it feels between the intimacy of two women talking and the and the relationships between the power dynamics between her and other men in the movie. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Um, I guess it's my turn for favorite. Yeah, part. it is your turn. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That um, so I've been I've been kind of racking my brain about this, and I have a hard time with it because I love so much uh, of this movie. I will say I do love the cast, the Casey Lemons and Jodie Foster close-ups moment. Um, I just 
love the way that they're framed. I love all of the close-ups in this movie and how they're framed, especially when you get to the final kind of showdown between Jodie Foster and Anthony, Anthony Hopkins, where now you're like, the depth of focus is like really gone and you're like extreme close-up on the both of them. Um, I love that scene. Um, I do, I've always loved the Migs scene as well as debasing as it is because um, I think it was one of the first times that when I saw this movie, the first times that I recognized how, just how dark and, and, and um, fucked up this movie was. And when you see it, when you're, when you, when you're 19, you're like, yeah, this is fucked up. Um, <laughs> now I see it on a different level, but you know, that was kind of what initially set me off was that, Oh, this isn't like other serial killers, mo- killer movies. This is taking it one step further. Um, and I love it's not a part, but I love the humor that 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 uh, and that Demi gives all of his actors. You know, right from you could say that the biggest villain of the movie, yes, is Buffalo Bill, but is also the the warden of the uh, hospital for the criminally yeah, insane. Definitely, he's very funny. Like he he just lets that actor chew it up. Yeah. He finds that great balance that again I reference. Paul Thomas Anderson and Scorsese, that great balance of knowing how to like show an actor having a great time chewing the scenery while feeling grounded and believable, which is just like an incredibly difficult thing to do because that's why you usually get movies that are way over the top or movies that are just flat because it's a very difficult like place to, to, to direct people into. Um, There's a thing where he's like, uh, playing with a pen on his face in Hannibal Lecter's cell. Yeah. And it's just done so amazingly because they've hammered home so hard you can't have any things in the cell with Hannibal. And he's like very gently touching his face with his extremely sharp pen the whole time. Uh, and then of course and forgets like, it and this precipitates the whole end of the movie. Right. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, you think you made a deal with them? <laughs> <laughs> they played you, um, Hannibal. <laughs> Yeah, but I made a deal. I've contacted the senator. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Um, I mean, it reminds me I, of, of William Atherton in uh, Ghostbusters, right? Yeah. It's like kind of a part like that. Yes. Yeah. It's exactly a part it's like that. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I will say my one other favorite part, because I don't feel like we've mentioned her performance enough, which is uh, Brooke Smith, who I think is amazing as Catherine. Um, oh, the, yeah. the kid, really the daughter cool. of the senator that gets kidnapped, that spends the majority of her time in the hole, um, and uh, takes the dog down with her precious. <laughs> um, she is uh, incredible in this role, and she's an actress that I've seen in other stuff after she was in this movie called Series Seven, this fake reality movie that was kind of like a Running Man style uh, movie from the late '90s, early 2000s, where she's great in it, and she's just a phenomenal actress that hasn't been in enough and i i kind of feel like this movie should have given her even even more roles because she's so great in this part right from the beginning when she's singing um american girl yeah, in the right. car you like know and feel this character and you 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 love her almost immediately um well i think it's so weird i'd love to hear what you think about this sean because like so the whole deal with this her character is that she's supposed to be we learn later on a senator's daughter and we see the senator uh, uh, in a couple scenes and she's very they go they mention that she's a republican she's very put together you know she looks like a, a senator from a harrison ford movie right but every time we see her daughter she like they make her seem like white trash can i say am i allowed to say that like they really like go out of their way to make her seem like white trash kind of and she's like are you saying that because she's like in a hole 
No, like even before <laughs> that. And then when like when she sees Clarice, she's like, "Come back here, you bitch." You know? I'll, I'll say this about that because I've thought about that. That it, it, it now that now knowing what we know now about how politicians' children right uh, comport yes. themselves and behave and live as adults, usually it's in the lap of luxury. You know, she's like she's bringing her groceries home to her little apartment with a cat, and like she just seems like just folks. And, and then when you find out that her mother is a senator, you're like, are they estranged? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> she's not a lobbyist. Like, what? That's weird. Yeah, right. She has to. She lives in this shitty apartment complex where Buffalo Bill can abduct her and nobody will notice. Yeah. you know, the cat notices to the cat's credit. But that, yeah, right, that I, is think, fair, yeah. I think it's fair to say there was a period of time where it wasn't like it is now. Like it was like a little bit, but not as 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 horrifically so in terms of corrupt <laughs> senatorial corruption. Or kind of like know. a Roger Clinton situation, or like a Billy Carter, where it's like you have embarrassing hillbilly relatives. Yeah, I think like you had senators in the eighties who had kids who probably just had did have, you know, semi normal lives, you know. It's weird though. I think I think it's weird. I think it's an odd choice. Hey, so it's been thirty years since this movie, Sean. Uh what do you what do you think is the most nineties thing about this movie? You know, I, I I I had a hard time with this question because a lot of it is it feels strangely timeless. And I think in large yes. part it's because almost everyone you meet is a cop or an FBI agent or in a prison jumpsuit. And there's not a lot of signifiers. Um, you know, even, even when she's off duty, she's in like FBI gear. Um, so I think probably the most nineties thing about it is that when Crawford breaks into the wrong home and says, Clarice, he can't just text her and be like, Clarice, you're going to <laughs> Buffalo Bill's house. Stop. Like, <laughs> I had that exact same thought when I was watching this when she was like in Buffalo's Bill's house and she goes, Sir, can I use your phone? <laughs> yes. As soon as it dawned on her, she would have been like, I'm in, I'm in, get me out of here, I'm fucked. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a shot where um, they're pulling up to a house of um, of a victim or a recent victim, or maybe it's like the senator's house or something. And there's like a wide shot of a car, of the car pulling up and you get a brief moment of everybody in like early nineties, small town clothes. Like there's some like what look like starter jackets and some like denim, like faded denim jeans, like stonewashed jeans, you know, and like, you know, white Nikes that you kind of get in like one quick shot. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Really I wonder if the movie kind of goes out of its way though, to feel timeless because Buffalo bill is, is dressed in so, you know, like semi timeless clothes almost. Right. Yeah, and and Catherine, when we meet her, she's just got a jacket on. It, it seems like the movie isn't. It might be intentionally um, timeless in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I I have an easy answer for what's the most '90s about this movie, and I'm shocked both of you are have missed this. And it's the fact that there's Chris Isaac is in this movie for no reason. <laughs> so like, obviously, that is the most '90s thing about this movie is that he just has like a couple of lines at the end of the movie as one of the cops for like no particular reason. <laughs> when is he in this movie? Because I saw his name in the opening credits and then I was, when the movie ended, I went, wait, where was Chris Isaac? just one of the cops the when they're, when Hannibal Lecter is made, they think Hannibal Lecter is on top of the elevator and they're like, oh, you go up there and you look over here. He's one of the cops who the, just goes like, okay, open up, you one know? One of the SWAT guys they call in after they've realized something's wrong, yeah. Yeah. He got fucking like above the line billing for that. <laughs> it's Chris Isaac, I, baby. 
Why did we both say that at the same time? We both I don't know. We feel very strongly about Chris Isaac, apparently. I he's a big deal, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I have an even easier and probably like a cheaper answer about the most '90s part of this movie, and I get. I mean, it's just kind of the because it set up the entire genre of the '90s, which is just like the female lead in the midst of a serial killer movie. Um, it didn't really exist before, and there was a number of these uh, after this, and that feels particularly night like particularly of the '90s and of and sort of ended right after the like in in the in the early 2000s. I can't remember any of them after that, but yeah, that that's that's how I feel about it. But I mean, that's just the movie. <laughs> yeah, like a female detective in a like beige silk overcoat, like solving a serial killer mystery. Yeah. Yeah, it's very 1990s. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, they couldn't even do that with Hannibal, the show. They brought in Will Graham, right? And then they did Red Dress. Like, they brought, they, I think the movie Hannibal was like 2001, 2002, maybe. And um, that was kind of the last time they did it. But that wasn't really about her solving a crime. That was about her being hunted by Hannibal, basically, at that point. Yeah. Um, so it's been 30 years since this movie came out. Um, Sean, what do you think this movie's grown out of? You mean like what, what it can. <laughs> this is so funny because nobody ever knows what the fuck Ricky means by this question. <laughs> I have to clarify it every time. What he means is what have we like as a society grown out oh, of? Yeah, that's what I thought. Movie. That's what I thought. Yeah, I, I got it. Don't worry. Um, I think what we discussed earlier about um, how it depicts trans people or if it does or if it doesn't or either way, um, it would have to handle things very differently where it made now. And that's why I've always, that's why I think it's kind of unfortunate that um, the Hannibal television show never was able to make a deal to adapt the science of the lambs uh, because I, I would be very curious to see how they would handle that or if they would, if they would, uh, uh, yeah you just you i think it was a well-intentioned film I, I think it went out of its way to point out that this person's not trans um but i think today you would probably have to f- close you'd have to foreclose on the opportunity for people to misinterpret it um mm-hmm. you know for understandable reasons for understandable reasons but do you do you have the fear that 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 fear of theirs would make it a less interesting movie, not because because they would have to hammer something home, be heavy handed or over explain something through exposition. Whereas like what works about this movie in a lot of ways is that it's not expositionally focused. And like, as they go out of their way to say that he's not trans, they don't hammer it home too hard because what's important to the movie is telling the story. And I feel so often what movies and television shows can be missing now is that they are so heavily focused on making sure that this thing is not this thing that could be misinterpreted. So therefore they're, they, they take you too far away from the story or they become didactic and, and bogged down in, in like in, in, in this. I mean, I suppose my answer to that is that um, let's, let's say Jonathan Demi was making it. Now you look at how he handled institutional and cultural sexism and misogyny in Silence of the Lambs, which he did without being didactic. Um, so I think that had these issues been more uh, prevalent in the sort of national conversation or, um, you know, 
I'm trying to think how to put it. I think that he's uh, he was a deft enough filmmaker to be able to figure out a way to make it clearer if that had been a concern of his at the time, um, and without it, without you feeling like you were getting lectured or something like that. Chris, what is your answer for this? And feel free to phrase the question for however you may understand it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't mean to give you a hard time, buddy. Um, no, I mean, I, I mean, I think along the lines of what Sean was talking about, uh, the room for things to be misinterpreted. Um, I think, you know, we've been talking a lot and you particularly Ricky about the way this movie handles this kind of like undercurrent of sexual violence that everyone has towards Clarice. Uh, you know, all of her coworkers at the FBI and, you know, as you're saying, the head of the, you know, psychiatric Institute and all this stuff. Um, and I totally agree with what you're saying about how it's subtly it's handled and how, you know, it it's not, it doesn't beat you over the head with it. It just kind of is happening all the time. But I think that if a movie were, if this movie were made today, like it wouldn't be as, it wouldn't handle it as softly as this movie does, because I think there is a little bit of room to misinterpret it. Like you could almost just think like, Oh, this is just the world Clarice lives in. Like we're watching how she interacts with the kinds of people that are just, you know, around all of, all of us all the time. You know, I don't think it, I obviously some of those people meet like terrible ends, but it's not like all of them are, revealed to be monsters and murdered by Hannibal Lecter, you know? Uh, so I think that this isn't like necessarily what, what we've grown out of. It's not like when, you know, we're doing ski school or something, but I think that like this would be handled a little differently also. I mean, and of course the transsexual stuff like that's like, yes, obviously that I agree with a hundred percent as well. But I agree with you in terms of the sexism stuff as well, because it's not even that it wouldn't be, that it's not even that it would it wouldn't be able to be as subtle as it is in this movie, and we've kind of all I think all come around to the fact that maybe it's not that <laughs> subtle <laughs> as well. Um, but everything needs every, and I hate to generalize, but w- when approaching these subjects in movies now, everything feels like it has to be kind of like an eye rolling rallying cry versus part of the story. Um, and so it's, it's, it's overdone. And when I was watching this movie, I was just struck consistently as how it felt so much a part of the story and the landscape versus hitting it to a point where like it wanted people to like stand up and cheer and yell at these characters and be like, you know, raise a fist in the air for, 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 for feminism versus just telling the story of a woman who's, who's dealing with this while the movie is in a lot of ways, a fist in the air for a feminist character. Yeah. If that makes sense. I hate to overgeneralize, you know, quote unquote movies now, but right. Yeah. I'll I mean, that's what we do every week. So that's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, what do you think we've grown out of Ricky? Oh, that was, that was basically it. <laughs> oh, okay. Cool. Word. <laughs> I'm kind of in agreement with you with like, uh, I guess elaborating on, 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 on my feelings about that specific thing, but having just watched Hannibal, you know, Ray Liotta's character in that movie is constantly staring at Julianne Moore's legs and then also being kind of like, you know, uh, what do you say me and you like fuck in the back room or something like that? Like, I mean, just so direct. And I guess the movie has to do that because by the end he's getting his brains eaten on camera and they have to sort of make that okay with the audience, but it just cheapens the material completely. I mean, that's all of the follow-up movies, like most sequels just totally cheapen um, 
what's great about uh, about this movie. Can I ask Sean, like, what do you think? Uh, were you surprised that this, I mean, obviously Silence of the Lambs is not the first movie set in this universe, but have you been surprised over the years how often people have come back to this story and these characters to try to tell new stories in this world because you know it's not with all due respect for Silence of the Lambs it's not like Star right. Wars right it's not like a galaxy far far away it's just this weird serial killer yeah, thing it, but for some reason there's been hundreds and hundreds of hours it of is, stories it is very world. weird that there is a Silence of the Lambs extended universe at this point and I think honestly um it comes down to Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins and probably more Anthony Hopkins than Jodie Foster because he's the villain and people love villains. But, you know, I, I've often said that um, superhero movies exist as the cultural behemoth that they are because someone had the presence of mind to replace Doug Ray Scott uh, with Hugh Jackman as Wolverine when, when Scott had to pull out <laughs> because of Mission Impossible. And then I think, and then all you you couple that with whoever's idea it was to cast uh, Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man. And the casting of those two roles is why superheroes are the thing that they are now. I'm fully convinced because people just love those performances so much. And I think that um, so much of what fuels subsequent efforts, whether Anthony Hopkins was involved in them or not, and even can go retroactively to uh, Manhunter, which is a Michael Mann thing. So people would have found it eventually no matter what, but like it's, it's a it's the big deal that it is and is Uber because it's a silence of the lambs related thing. Um, I do think that comes down to Hopkins's performance. That just, just, he's just like a Darth Vader. He's just a Freddy Krueger. He's a Dracula. He's one of those he's iconic a monster. Monsters. He's a movie monster, right? Yeah. He's Absolutely. a candy man. Now we're speaking my language. Well, guys, I think, I think we did it. I think silence of the lambs, um oh i have one more thing um about this movie and i feel like i might have asked at the beginning but maybe i didn't i meant to um so let's just bring it up at the end <laughs> what did you guys think of the movie no um uh, when it comes to have you ever shown this movie to someone who hadn't seen it upon release has probably seen all of the cop shows all of like maybe some follow-up movies and they weren't sort of moved by the power of of the movie? No, I've not, I've not. Thankfully. Yeah. Interesting. Have you had this I've, experience, Ricky? I've had it with other Demi movies. And I think it's because Demi being like a journeyman and making, you know, kind of Hollywood movies at the time. It's it, sometimes it can be hard to recognize what's so specifically unique about what he's doing versus it's so obvious to recognize. I think I was saying this before. It's obvious to recognize what's oh, so yeah, specifically yeah, yeah. unique about Tarantino or, you know, or Martin Scorsese, you know, there's something about Demi that's, that's, that feels uh, that it's, I think if you're not paying enough attention or don't know enough about movies, it's hard to recognize that difference. So people kind of turn it off or it just looks like a serial killer movie like just any other serial killer movie. And you also have to give Silence of the Lambs a little bit of time, right? It's not like murders are happening right away. Like in Seven, where it's like within five minutes, you're in the gluttonous guy's house and he's like shitting on right. the floor or whatever he's doing, right? So like Silence of the Lambs, as much as she gets semen thrown in her face in the first 15 minutes, it takes a little bit of time before you even meet. I think Buffalo Bill appears 30 minutes into the movie, hmm. right? I think Catherine... Um, appears singing American Woman about 30 minutes into the movie, if I remember correctly. Yeah, because there's the, the, the night I mean, vision yeah. goggles are such a big deal. Um, 
that's 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 yes that's also a good 90s answer those were really big in the 90s i feel um guys uh before we go just uh make sure to go uh check out sean's uh sean's stuff uh on his patreon and uh on on his website and and check out his roadhouse book on matt zolder sites uh bookshop um sean am i doing a good job directing people places uh, uh, patreon.com slash the sean t collins uh on Twitter, on Twitter, I'm at the Sean T. Collins. I'm Sean T. Collins. That's all you need to know. <laughs> that'll that'll do it, uh, guys. Thanks Bye-bye. so much. Bye bye. Bye.